Good morning. It's excellent to be with you. Hey man, the ops team and the sound team and uh, the music team with Daylight Savings have been up probably like 5 a.m. their body clock leading and serving us. Let's give it up for them. So appreciate it. And turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 13, 10 to 20. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. And he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord, amen? amen. So we've been mulling over Jesus' words about his return the last few weeks, that he would return unexpectedly like a thief in the night, that he would return like a master to judge between faithful and unfaithful servants, that he would return like a farmer to see if there was fruit on the tree, uh, the return of Jesus, and that he would reward faithfulness, he would punish unbelief and unfaithfulness. And these were abrasing chapters, aren't they? And I, I think that this theme of the return of Christ is, is so apt for us, but in many ways, it's kind of half-baked in our mind. And it requires that we kind of go low and slow like an 18-hour brisket over a complex, complex topic. It's not going to be an 18-hour sermon. But what we find is that, is that Jesus has not just been teaching about his return, but as he teaches about his return, Luke 11, 12, 13, he's also teaching about his kingdom. And so remember around prayer, Luke 11, when you pray, pray, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you can't understand my return without thinking rightly about my kingdom. And then he goes on to say, 
and around money, Luke 12, when you think about money and, and you worry about possessions, what you're gonna wear and eat, etc., say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And then he goes on to say, and it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Beautiful, beautiful. And now, as he con continues to demonstrate his kingdom through the healing of this woman who's been disabled for 18 years, he, de he describes the kingdom. What is the kingdom like? What is the kingdom like? It's like a man who took a mustard seed and planted it and became a massive tree, all the birds of the air, nested in that tree. And it's like a woman who took yeast and it leavened the whole batch of dough. What is the kingdom like? So today there's, there's a demonstration of the kingdom. There's a description of the kingdom. It is so important when we think about the return of Christ. As Andrew said, the, the apocalypse, that we don't just see it as Jesus coming back, but it's actually a revealing of the kingdom. And if we think wrongly about the kingdom, we will think wrongly about the return of Christ. And I think the return of Christ has been like front and center for many of us this last year, because let's face it, 2020 felt like the zombie apocalypse, right? It felt weird and dark and full of doom. And there was this impending sense of, oh, it's the end of the world and we, as we know it, you know, and I don't feel fine at all. We have that sense. And so we found all sorts of theories about how Jesus is gonna return. And some of them are quite weird. And it's Bill Gates who's the antichrist. And it's the vaccine that's the mark of the beast and all sorts of speculation that 5G is, is, is Satan's network because he's the prince of the power of, of the air and, and all that stuff. You've heard it, I've heard it. And what's strange about that is I've been a Christian growing up as a pastor's kid. Every decade, we think someone different is the mark of the beast and someone different is the antichrist. Growing up, it was, it was Gorbachev. He was the antichrist and credit cards, were the mark of the beast. Cut up your credit cards. And then it became, I don't know, like Oprah, Oprah. <laughs> and like it's QR codes, beware of those QR codes. And now it's Gates and it's the vaccine. And it just gets quite weird if we don't understand the return of Christ through the lens of his kingdom. And so Jesus is displaying or demonstrating the kingdom in this amazing miracle. We're gonna look at it. And then he's describing the kingdom and the big idea in this passage is that the kingdom grows from small to big. As we await the return of Christ, the kingdom grows from small to big. And sometimes it grows slowly like a mustard seed that grows like imperceptible to the naked eye, slowly but small to big. And other times it grows suddenly like yeast in a batch of dough whether it grows slowly or suddenly, the kingdom grows from small to big. Do you believe it? Yeah. Do we believe it? Because I think what's happened is last year robbed many of us, probably me included, of confidence that the kingdom is actually gonna grow. And so our understanding of the return of Christ was what many call kingdom not yet. Kingdom not yet, in other words, I mean, life will be terrible, dark, 
sick, divided, kind of like that movie Castaway, you know, like, like Tom Hanks on the island, surrounded by the deep, dark world with nothing but my imaginary friend, Wilson, Wilson, waiting for rescue. The kingdom not yet is just waiting for Jesus to return and rescue us from this terrible, dark world. And that last year became, I think, the predominant thinking about the return of Christ. This is me, Tom Hanks with Wilson. Please come and rescue me. And then there's another way to think about the kingdom. Let's get it up there. It's not the kingdom not yet. Is it up there? Yeah. Not the kingdom not yet. It's the kingdom now. The kingdom now, which is because Jesus has died and risen from the dead and ascended to heaven and he's conquered sin, conquered Satan, conquered death. There is no sickness, no sorrow, no darkness, no trouble. We're just gonna overcome a little bit more like Braveheart. It's, it's a kingdom of conquest. There's not gonna be any trouble. It's gonna be heaven on earth. Amen? I don't know if you should say amen. That's was a trick, amen. <laughs> But you see that in the church. It's not kingdom, not yet. It's the kingdom now, heaven on earth. But the problem with that is that we don't have a category. We don't have a theology for sickness and suffering and darkness and spiritual battle. And so many last year lost their faith because they had a kingdom now vision and then their friends got sick. Then their friends died, family members died. And they're like, well, that's not what I bought into. So kingdom now also isn't helpful. And what I wanna suggest and teach from this passage is the best vision of the kingdom until we wait, until the king returns is what George Eldon Ladd called now and not yet. Can you say that now, now. and not yet? Now. Which means actually with the death, resurrection and, and, and ascension of Jesus, yes, death has been defeated. Satan and sin has been defeated, but actually that was the launch or the inauguration of the kingdom. And actually the kingdom will only be fully consummated at the return of Christ. So we live between the beginning and the end of the kingdom. We live in this in-between now and not yet space. And that means we have a category for sickness and darkness and death and satanic struggle, but we live hopeful that the king is not just gonna come one day, his kingdom is coming all the time, growing from small to big, amen? I wanna help us to build a robust now and not yet kingdom theology as we wait the return of Christ. One of the ways that Eldon Ladd described it was in World War II, there were two dates that were decisive for the victory of England and, and, and its allies. The one was 1944, May, which was Normandy, which they called D-Day the storming of Normandy, and that was the beginning of the end. But between Normandy and Victory in Europe Day, which was 11 months, 1944, uh, May, sorry, June to 1945, May, the war still waged. The beginning of the end was 1944, but actually there were huge casualties until Germany raised the flag. And as we understand that the kingdom of Christ is actually confronting the kingdom of Satan, having begun the decisive defeat of Satan at Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, but the war still wages. 
Revelations 12 says, Satan, knowing that his time is short, is raging. And that's what we see here, beloved, that we can actually live with a kingdom now and not yet vision. And that's what we see in Luke chapter 12 as Jesus comes and he meets this woman and there's confrontation between his kingdom and the kingdom of Satan. And can you imagine this poor woman who's bent over? She's had what Jesus calls a disabling spirit for 18 years. And surely she must have cried out to God in desperation, Lord, won't you heal me? I can't look anyone in the eye. I can't embrace anyone. I feel embarrassed in public. I'm stooped over. Can't see the preacher. It hurts even to sing. My lungs are crushed over. I can't dance. I can't rejoice. And she must have felt at times, God, do you even see me? And yet she's there in the synagogue on the Sabbath. I don't know if I would be 18 years later, would you? And when we think of the kingdom growing from small to big, I think of this lady just being in the room. Sometimes the small thing you need to be is just just be in the room. She didn't even have strength to call out to Jesus. He saw her, it said, and he called out to her, woman, you are healed from your disability. Think of the incredible compassion. She was so bowed over, she probably couldn't see Jesus. And he was taking a risk, calling her out, drawing attention to her disability. And yet, he's so compassionate. Dane Ortland says, Christ's heart is a crouched coil of compassion ready to spring. And sometimes the small thing we do for the kingdom to grow is just be in the room, be in His presence, be with the people of God as hard as that might be. And imagine the the leap of hope in a crushed soul, just going, He does see me, God does see me. Out of all these people, He called me. And He is compassionate and He's not deaf to my cries. And we see Actually, until the king returns, he will be liberating people from the crushing power of Satan. Now we have to understand, let me just qualify for a moment. Not all sickness or disability is demonic or even the result of sin. Let's get this crystal clear that God doesn't heal all the time. He doesn't have to, he's God. He can, but he doesn't have to. And sometimes God in his mysterious sovereignty does not heal people with disability and he actually chooses to bring glory to himself by them suffering well. We have to have a category for that. My dad's older sister was born with the umbilical cord wrapped around her neck with cerebral palsy. She is in her 80s now. She's a believer. She's never been healed. She's written a book called Wheeling Towards the Prize, which is about her in a wheelchair. And her testimony has gone all over the world and has brought glory to Christ. And we need to see that in the body of Christ, some people with physical disability, even emotional and mental disability will actually bring glory to Christ. We must have a category for it. God forbid that everyone, we say, oh, that's demonic. That would be terrible. That would lack compassion. But 
we also need a category for the, the demonic. And actually, if you count up the number of times Jesus healed in Luke, it's 11 moments of healing. Four of them, Luke, remember, remember Luke was what? What was Luke? He was a doctor and a historian. He was not given to hyperbole like me. <laughs> Be quiet. My wife just corrects me if I exaggerate, so it's helpful. And his whole reason for writing the gospel was to provide a historical account. He's understated. And yet four out of the 11 times, he just says, it was a demon. And this time, Jesus just very clearly says, this woman whom Satan has bound for 18 years. In this case, actually what glorified God was Jesus setting her free from that oppression. And Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham, which denotes a place of faith. Abraham was the father of faith. So she wasn't just Jewish, she was a woman of faith. And so some of you would ask, well, how can a person of faith have a demon? And the word here is not demon possession, it's actually demonization. In other words, there was oppression. We don't know how. Somehow she had been oppressed by a demon and it actually resulted in a physical disability. Just have a category for it. And Jesus just wonderfully comes to restore her. You know, sometimes the small thing we do is either be in the room. Sometimes the small thing we do that causes the kingdom to grow as Christ's heart is a sprung coil of compassion ready to jump on you with healing and restoration. The small thing we do is say, is there any unforgiveness or bitterness in me that has given Satan a foothold? Now I'm reaching because it doesn't say that this woman was bitter. We don't know, but what we do know is Ephesians 4.16 says, forgive as Christ forgave you and do not allow a root of bitterness to spring up and do not give Satan a stronghold. In other words, sometimes unforgiveness and bitterness gives the demonic a stronghold in our life. It gives Satan a bit of the piece of ground in our life. And the small thing we do is say, I forgive you. Got a friend, Steve Barr, who years ago was praying for a woman who was also bent over, doubled over. He was praying for her to be healed. And he felt the Spirit say, ask her about unforgiveness. Is there anyone you haven't forgiven? She says, my sister. My sister and I had a terrible feud years ago. I have not forgiven her. She said, he said, okay, we're not gonna pray for healing right now. We're gonna pray forgiveness. And as... She prayed forgiveness, she straightened up. Isn't that beautiful? Now again, not every single person, but have a category for it. Sometimes the very small thing we do causes the kingdom to grow. Sometimes the very small thing we do is actually extend compassion in physical compassion, felt ways to people who are hurting. And as a small thing, the kingdom grows either suddenly or slowly. I have a friend who was part of a famous church and this church was experiencing revival. They were doing uh, big kind of revival rallies. And there was a guy, a homeless guy, who was, who was either possessed or oppressed by a demon. And he was shouting and growling while the preacher was preaching. And he felt God say, go and buy that man a pair of shoes. He was barefoot in rags. He bought him a pair of shoes. And as he put the shoes on, peace came over this man. Amazing. 
Sometimes the small act of compassion brings the kingdom radically. So we see until the king returns, he will liberate people from the crushing power of Satan. Then we see this, that she didn't just get set free. It says that she straightened up and gave glory to God. Isn't that beautiful? She straightened up and gave glory to God. My worship leader imagination just goes like, she probably went to the synagogue band and was like, hey, crank it up. No time for a sound check now. I haven't been able to sing or dance. I'm leading some worship, man. She glorified God. Amazing. Praise party. And I just love what God is doing in this tent at this time. As people are experiencing the presence of God, the healing of God, worship is far more just spontaneous and people are just, it's not forced. It's just, we just wanna glorify God because the kingdom is breaking in. And the word straightened up, it's a beautiful word in the Greek, it's panteles. Say that. Which means to straighten up all the way. For 18 years, no one knew her height. And then she's like, I'll show you my height. Shoulders back, here I am. Ligaments, vertebra, muscles, just as the kingdom came. The kingdom was coming like yeast at this time. It says she straightened up instantly, just all the way. It's a beautiful thing. And you know, it shows us that whether we physically disabled emotionally, spiritually, relationally. Actually, Jesus will not leave us there. Jesus is absolutely intent, whether instantly or slowly. He's actually gonna not just set us free, he's gonna bring us to our full stature. He's gonna restore us. He placed his hands and said, you are restored. The whole reason Jesus came was to restore humanity back to its full stature, what it meant to be truly human. And each of us have got things that buckle us over. And Jesus' nail-scarred hands of power and kindness are restoring hands. It's the carpenter's hands. He's a restorer. And you say, how do I know that He'll restore me? I'm bowed over by anxiety. I'm bowed over by fear or bitterness. How do I know? We know because on the cross, Jesus bowed His head into the fiercest storm of our sickness, our sorrow, our sadness, our darkness. He bowed Himself so that He could straighten us up all the way. It's the beautiful exchange. I will bow my head, give up my spirit that you might be able to stand up straight. You know, there's only one other moment in Scripture that that same word, panteles, is used. Straighten up all the way. And it's Hebrews 7, verse 25, that says, since Jesus lives to intercede, to pray for us, He's able to save to the uttermost. Can you say that? To the uttermost. Those who come to Him. The uttermost, Panteles, straight up, all the way. Jesus is praying for a doubled over church right now. He is intent on saving us to the uttermost. Restoring, healing, maturing, strengthening. Now, I know I've been in pastoral ministry for 25 years, Christian for 35 years. Most restoration is slow. 
Most emotional healing, most maturity, most sanctification is slow. It's more mustard seed than yeast. But I just wanna ask us to actually trust the restoring hands of Jesus that He will not leave us doubled over. He promises, I am coming back for a straight up church. Ephesians 4 says, that we who are the body of Christ grow up into our full stature into Him who is the head, even Christ. What is that thing that you say, I'm just doubled over with that thing? He is praying, whether suddenly or slowly, that we would be straight up. I think the church has not stood to its full stature this last year. The big C church. We've been shrunken shrunken in fear, shrunken in division, shrunken in our political tribalism, shrunken in gossip and backbiting, shrunken in hypocrisy. I mean, how many Christian leaders have, have just devastated people by their double lives? And we say, oh God, your church has doubled over. And he says, I know, but I'm praying. I'm absolutely intent that my church would stand up. I am not coming back to a shrunken over church. I'm coming up, coming back for a straight up church that, that, that will stand stronger, sing louder, love more compassionately, live holier. That's what he's coming back for. Until the king returns, he is not coming back for a doubled over church. Let's believe it. Let's be part of it. Sometimes the small thing we can do as we trust that the kingdom grows in the church is that we just gather in a tent in the cold and the rain in a car park from small to big. And some of you are meeting one-on-ones. I know I sit at Golden State and I see a number of people meeting one-on-ones and I just go, they are loving one another. They are just encouraging one another. That is small, that is not insignificant, that is mustard seed, that is yeast. The kingdom is growing on that coffee table from small to big. Don't despise the small. Zechariah says, don't despise the day of small beginnings. We just gotta go, Lord, what is my mustard seed? What is my yeast? Thursday morning after our prayer, t- prayer time here, I think it was 123 people huddled in the rain and the cold, well done. God broke out and I sat in my morning old beat up leather chair and God had done some things in my life and my family's life and some friend's life and I don't, I don't do this often. I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. My kids came running from their bedroom saying, what, what is going on, Dad? We've never heard you cry. Now my kids know that I joke, my bladder's behind my eyes. I kind of tear up, tear up when I speak about Jesus sometimes, but actually I could not stop sobbing. My wife came back from her run. She's like, what is going on? I said, I don't know. I feel a mix of grief from the last year, but incredible relief because, because Jesus is growing his kingdom amongst us. 
And I just continued to hear little stories for the next day or so of people that had met with Jesus. Incredibly, not just at the prayer meeting, but just people that got healed, people saying, I'll be baptized. People just doubt dispelled and anxiety dispelled. The kingdom is growing, beloved. Of course, we're not naive about the world. The world is getting darker, but the church will stand stronger. Church will burn brighter. Jesus promises it. Until the king returns, he will not just bring restoration to his people, he will cause indignation amongst the religious. This is a glorious passage, but there's a but in the middle of it. But the ruler of the synagogue was indignant. This guy is a royal jerk. I mean, someone's got healed that's been coming to your church for 18 years. And there's a praise party going on. She's glorifying God. People are all rejoicing and he just comes and unplugs the sound. No, it's the Sabbath. You can come any other day of the week. I'm just like, irony, really, do you heal anyone on any other day of the week? No, you don't. But like not on the Sabbath, especially. Especially not on the Sabbath. He's a jerk. He's a legalist. He's taken the law of God, which is the Sabbath, and he's built like this cause that nothing like this should happen on the Sabbath. And Jesus just lays into him. Think, I mean, Jesus has been so tender with this woman. He's really tough on this guy. Why? Because he's a killjoy. He's pooping all over the praise party. And Jesus is just saying, I will not have it. I will not have this. And Jesus starts laying it over. He says, hey, you hypocrite. You will untie your ox or your donkey on the Sabbath to, to, to give it a, a drink, but you won't allow this woman to be untied on the Sabbath. You hypocrite, you love animals more than people. That'll preach in Orange County. I love my dog. I do, probably too much. But I tell you what, man, our possessions, our pets, they're more important than people. We push our doggy and the doggy stroller on the way to the doggy parlor, past the homeless person at the bus shelter because we don't want to miss our doggy parlor. You love pets more than people. Or you love protocol more than people. Don't interrupt my life planning, my family meal time, my gym time. Don't interrupt that. Don't interrupt our service. And Jesus is just saying, you want my kingdom to come? Either small, slowly, suddenly, be interruptible. As my dad says, make people more important than things. Are people more important than things to you? And I wanna say just before I get too challenging, I see myself in this ruler of the synagogue because this guy's the lead elder of the church. And he's a legalist, he's bitter, he's critical. Sometimes I get like that, like, some other churches in the city are just like growing amazingly. And I just go, oh, but their theology sucks. How can they be growing? A kingdom now. Or otherwise, oh man, no, no, that's not the life of God. They just got a celebrity pastor and a celebrity worship leader, man. That's not the life of God. Legalist. Or otherwise, how can God be blessing them? They don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Critical legalism. 
very easy for us to see ourselves in the shoes of the woman. But can we also see ourselves in the shoes of the ruler of the synagogue? Sometimes when a God law is good, but we build it higher than God wants us to build it, it becomes our one cause and we become legalists. So if you get a house on a street, busy street, you've got kids, you build a fence around it. Good. The Sabbath is like that. It's a fence around us so we don't work ourselves to death. Sabbath is a good law. But this guy, he built it higher. He put an electric fence, razor wire, higher than God wanted it. It became his one cause. And he was a killjoy. John Piper says, Jesus is tough on this guy because Jesus is not a killjoy. Jesus wants to kill what kills our joy. What has become your cause? Maybe it's your political opinion, where it's a God thing, sanctity of marriage, sanctity of human life, but it actually like, it's a, it's a fence that you built into a huge wall and anyone who's not as passionate about it as you are, you just poop on their party. Or maybe it's the poor, a God law, compassion for the law, but that's become your ultimate cause and anyone that's not as compassionate as you, you kill their joy. Let's not be like that. Let's not be like that with our masks or our not masks. Our meeting inside, our meeting in the open. It can be a good thing that becomes our cause. Hello? Oh, there's legalism in all of us. And actually it'll kill our joy and the joy of others. But you see this passage landing so beautifully where it says, Winds blowing my Bible pages over. 17, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Until the king returns, there will be restoration, there will be liberation, there will be indignation at times. But then what we see is there will be a distinction between those who are Jesus' adversaries and those who are Jesus' subjects. His adversaries were put to shame. His subjects rejoiced at all the glorious things He did. What I love about this passage is that it brings the sense of a separation where there's no middle ground. There's a sense in which in our culture today, it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm with Jesus, but like, not too much. I'm not one of those Jesus freaks. I believe in Jesus. I don't know if He's king. I don't know if I'm living in the kingdom. Here, there's really no middle ground. There's either you're an adversary or you're a subject. And the adversaries suffer shame, it says. The subjects rejoice with great joy. As Jesus' kingdom grows from small to large, there's a call to decide, am I an adversary or a subject? And if I'm a subject, it will come with a great cost, but great glory and great joy. My wife said I shouldn't wade into controversies, but I'm going to (laughs) as we land. 
Many of you have watched the Harry, Prince Harry, Meghan Markle interview. Uh-oh. <laughs> I am not going to give my opinion on what went down. So just breathe a sigh of relief. But it's the closest thing to a kingdom we have, the monarchy. And as Oprah interviewed them, they essentially said, we left the monarchy, we love the queen, we left the monarchy because there was racism and because they didn't take care of our mental health. I am not weighing in whether they, there was or wasn't. I'm stepping right away from that controversy. 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 And Karen is looking daggers at me because she loves the monarchy. Do you? I don't know. We'll talk later. One thing I do know, you love my dog more than me. What were the reasons, right or wrong? I don't care. What happened though, is they decided to leave. Decided to set up home in Santa Barbara, beautiful Santa Barbara. And they decided to shrug off their monarch responsibilities. We're leaving the monarchy. We love the queen. We're leaving the monarchy in terms of responsibilities. What was curious to me was their shock that the privileges of the monarchy were suspended. They took our money away. They took our titles away. They took our security detail away. We wanted to leave the monarchy, but we wanted still the privileges of the monarchy. And I just scratched my head. I said, you're free to leave the monarchy, but you can't expect the privileges of the monarchy without the responsibilities. It reminds me of many Christians today. We love the king. We don't want the responsibility of the kingdom. And when the privileges of the kingdom are suspended, we're shock and horror. And actually today, Jesus is saying, no, don't just love the king, be a subject of the kingdom. And enjoy the privileges of the kingdom. Enjoy the security and the provision and the presence of God and watching the kingdom grow from small to big. Enjoy that because you've bowed the knee. One day, every knee will bow before the king. But there will be two kinds of people who bow on that day. There will be those that bow with shame because they were adversaries. And there will be those that bow with joy because they bowed before. Jesus wants you to be the latter, not the former. He wants you to bow now so that on that day, you will bow with joy, not with shame. Let's pray. Jesus, please come. Your presence is here. You are working. Your kingdom is growing from small to large. Lord Jesus, I want to ask that you would come and break off a sense of pending doom, that you would grow confidence in your people that your kingdom will come until you return. Lord Jesus, we're sorry for, for fear. This last year was a doozy and it robbed us of confidence that your kingdom is growing, but I thank you that it is. It's growing from small to large. And I pray that every person here would be confident enough to plant the mustard seed, to knead the yeast into the dough, 
and watch your kingdom grow. Before we worship, I wanna give you an opportunity. You know, some of you is like, man, this has never been sudden. I've never seen the, the kingdom grow suddenly, only slowly. Let's remember this woman, 18 years, 18 years. The kingdom can come. Some of you are saying, I don't know if I've really bowed my knee. I've kind of been in that middle ground. I don't know whether I'm, a, I'm an adversary or a subject. And today, you can make a quality decision. I'm not an adversary, I am a subject. And I'm bowing with joy. Before we sing, won't you lift up your hand quickly if you're saying, I'm bowing as a subject today. I'm bowing, thank you. Is there anyone else? I'm bowing as a subject. Bowing as a subject. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.